Amen. As everybody has a seat, man, thank you, uh, Lauren and Bailey and the band for doing a great job in leading us in worship in Will's absence as he is with the kids this hour. He was with the preschool, um, my kid, uh, last hour, God love him, and now he's with some of my other children uh, in this service as well. And so uh, we do that uh, every quarter, Once of our, one of our staff folks will uh, take a day I uh, pick a Sunday where they will serve in the student in the children's ministry and preschool ministry. As we grow as a church, the single greatest need for volunteers will come in the area of children's and preschool ministry. And so we want to keep it in front of you. It's important for enough for us to do all of the logistics of covering for us on a Sunday morning, covering for ourselves on a Sunday morning. I'm going to be honest with you. I think Will and Jeremiah and some of these guys can have a harder time than I. I can find, find somebody to preach for me, right? But uh, and some of y'all said, think I probably should do it more often. Uh, but I can find somebody to preach for them. But these guys, man, they, there's a lot of legwork that's done on the back end. But it's to keep in front of our church the need that we have for children's and preschool ministry. Many of you, as, I, as is my testimony, would say that you came to Christ at a young age. That doesn't happen unless there is investment in that generation, in, in that, that age group. So make sure that you're doing that. We just want you to consider that. If you haven't plugged in to Lindsay Lane North, if you've been a member for a while, maybe that's an opportunity for you to plug in, or as Will said, any of our ministry teams. Serve one, attend one. Two services are for your convenience so that you can grow, you can be poured into, and you can pour out on others. All right? Man, we've got a lot going on uh, in this season. Man, we, we are doing a ton. We've got baby dedication coming up next week. If you haven't gotten your forms uh, filled out, we need those by today. So if you've got a child that you would like to dedicate uh, to the Lord, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a baby. Um, any, any children that you have that have not had that done, you can do that. We've got a gift for you. We want to get in your hands. Um, and we want to have an amazing time of worship next week doing that. So make sure you get that in pictures. Uh, you can get that from the preschool room, the baby room, not the preschool room. I was told that was the wrong terminology. The baby room is where you find uh, that information. We got baby dedication coming up. Uh, we're going to be doing a bunch. We're doing a, in the parade uh, this, uh, this Saturday coming up that we'll be there and serving in that. Uh, we'll have a float. So if you guys want to attend, if you are friends of ours on Facebook, uh, be a part of the loop, which is the only group that our church has, and it keeps you in the loop, all right? And so we do announcements. We have prayer requests that come through there. We have all kinds of different things, uh, ways that you can get involved. And so uh, we'll be sending out on the loop this week, uh, getting families to uh, be a part of that parade, which is going to be a lot of fun. They've got things at the school that our inflatables are going to be at and some other people are going to be at. We've got Will doing some stuff downtown when they light the Christmas tree. We're just spread in a lot of different ways. It's great stuff, but as, as being in the community, as we make this transition from Thanksgiving to Christmas, think about how, how God has called you to express your thankfulness. Our thankfulness to God is expressed in giving to others. 
right? That's how we express that. That's how we show that. And so uh, I just want to encourage you in those ways to think about those things as Will is modeling that for us uh, this Sunday. But you can turn in your Bibles today to Mark chapter 4. Again, we are ping-ponging around in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark talking about Jesus' ministry to the multitude in these first eight chapters. But specifically, we are dealing with really what Jesus has been driving at all along. We've talked about the calling. Jesus called the multitudes to him, not because he wanted a big fan base, but because he wanted to draw followers to him. Those that were invested in what he was doing. Those that had given their heart, life, and soul to what he was teaching. They had committed their lives to Jesus in following him, right? He, he wasn't about building a crowd. If he was, 120 people would not be the sum total of his followers that he had accumulated by the day of Pentecost, right? The church really started booming after he left, which is mind-blowing when we think about it, right? What could be better than Jesus walking around? But Jesus was drawing people from the multitude, calling, and he's calling us even today. Uh, we talked about Jesus as he was teaching the multitude, teaching in parables. Again, looking past what is the obvious picture, he was drawing us in. If we would incline our hearts, if we can get past our brains and incline our hearts, that God would reveal himself through these stories, through these parables, through these teachings. We talked last week about the miracles that Jesus performed and its crucial role in bringing people in right relationship with himself through faith, right? It was always through faith. That is the secret sauce of those that would believe, and it's no different. As we talk about today, ultimately what Jesus is proving in these eight chapters is his incredible power. Although there is so much secrecy in the book of Mark, there is a beautiful illumination as we draw in to see Jesus' power that can only be described as divine. When people see what Jesus did, when they see the power that he holds over crucial things in our life, over creation, over creed, over, um, over the curse of sin, as he, as he, we see his power over these things, right? We recognize him for who he is. He's the son of God. He's the perfect son of God that's come to cleanse the world of sin if we would respond in faith. And so the way we... We will turn first to Mark chapter 4. We see three areas that God, Jesus demonstrates his power to the multitudes, to the large groups of people. And the first we find is in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across on the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And... Don't miss this. There were other boats were with him. This was not Jesus teaching a lesson to his 12 disciples. Now the 12 were probably in his boat. There were other boats there, meaning other people 
were witnessing what we are about to see unfold. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. That's important. They weren't fearing that the water was coming in. It was coming in. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? What is the question he asks? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. We see Jesus's power over creation, right? Over elements that we have no control over. Listen, the people of that day understood what it was like for their lives to be dictated by the elements, dictated by the fact that they lived in a very arid climate, in a, in a desert climate, understood what it was like to have windstorms come up on them in a moment's notice. Many of these disciples who were with Jesus on this boat were fishermen, which meant they had spent a long time in the water. So this isn't my kids coming to me when the boat's rocking a little bit in the bass boat on the Tennessee River saying, Daddy, we're going to drown, we're going to flip. These are people that knew their way around a boat saying, Hey, we're not just thinking we might die. Water is coming in. We are perishing. Right? They were, this was not to be glossed over. They were not being uh, overly, um, they, they were not embellishing. They're not using hyperbole. We are going to die out here. Jesus, do you not care? This isn't the only time that we see Jesus bending the creative order and the way that creation works. The parameters that are clearly laid out by God to how creation is to follow. Things like physics. Y'all, you're not supposed to break five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. That goes against the law of, of, of matter, right? You can't create matter out of nothing. Yet he continues to break so much so that 5,000 plus women and children and 12 baskets are left over. Jesus is showing his power over creation as, as the people of that day would be used to being dictated, the, the elements in creation dictating their way of life. Jesus was, was dictating to creation as well and creation bared witness. Every time that Jesus did perform one of these miracles, we see here that great fear was on everyone, and, and, and they begin to ask questions of who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. When he feeds the 5,000, it says that they were astonished, astounded in my translation. Uh, in Mark 8, when he feeds the 4,000, it tells them that they were astound, astounded. What it also tells them is that they didn't understand when Jesus would walk on water later. They wouldn't, didn't understand how he could walk on water because they had never understood the loaves. 
He didn't, they didn't understand what he was doing with the fishes and the loaves. And so Jesus is illuminating, is revealing his power over creation. But we look at those stories, and y'all, we are less than astounded. Why? Because every VBS, every Sunday school teacher we've ever had, every preacher like today who has stood before you has preached sermons on these things. We know about Jesus telling the waves and the wind to be still and it happening. We know that Jesus broke bread and fish and fed 5,000. And we look at all those stories and we're less than impressed because we weren't a part of those stories. We weren't there. It wasn't our lives being saved in the boat. We weren't in the boat. We heard the story of the boat and we think it's a pretty cool story, but we've lost our fear, our reverence, and our wonder for the power of God. But when we do that, we place ourselves in a very precarious place in our own life. The danger to that is the same people who are not amazed by the multiplication of the food to feed 5,000 plus are going to be the same that are tend, that tend to doubt God to sustain our families until the next paycheck. We don't see the connection that a God who is completely over our circumstances has more than enough to meet all of our needs, even when it doesn't make sense. And so there is a complete bafflement of physics and matter to feed the 5,000, but there is equal ability that God has to meet us in our times of need. We serve a God who meets need. And for us to be less than astounded at what he did then leads us to the place where we will doubt him now. But he's the same God revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. The same of us who are not astounded by his silencing of the wind and the waves are the same that doubt his power to bring peace to a wayward child or broken relationship in our life. We weren't on the boat. So that storm that they went through, that's all fine and good, that's for them. But how many of you know when you're going through a storm, it begins to test our faith in a new way? When we've got broken relationships, when our marriages are on the rocks, when our children are going wayward, when there's discontent in the workplace. Those are the storms. And if we don't grasp what God is doing, what Jesus is doing in Mark, then we'll miss the fact that he is able to mend and bring peace in our circumstances as well. Because we all are going through storms. I heard a friend of mine, a mentor of mine say, there's only three types of people in the world. There's people that are in a storm. There's people that are coming out of a storm. And there's people that are going into a storm, right? And so in our storms is where God receives the glory. Why? Because he's meeting needs that we could never meet on our own. He has power over our circumstances, over the created order, over how we function and how we live our lives. God has power. Jesus is showing his power over creation. 
but not just creation. That, that's a pretty incredible metric that is clearly defined in the first eight chapters of Mark. But we also see his power over creed. Jesus was also exerting his power over the dogma and the religion of the day. He was relating that the message that he brought, the thing that he was doing, was not going to fit in comfortable Judaism. It wasn't going to fit in the 630-something laws of the Old Testament and all of the teachings in the uh, Talmud that, that would have all the other teachings on top of that that would keep them from breaking the law. But Jesus would say, actually, in trying to keep those, you have actually broken the ones you're actually supposed to keep, right? So you, you've, you've blown it in that. What you've tried to safeguard from sin has actually caused you to sin. And so Jesus shows in multiple occasions his power over creed, his power over the dogma of the day. And that is not bad. The law, listen, for anyone that would say the law is not bad. We are. Paul says the law is a schoolmaster. The problem is we in detention a lot. That's the problem. We don't behave. We don't follow the law. We're sinful. Mark 2, 18 through 22. Listen to what it says. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. This was a common trend. Uh, the Old Testament law called that you fast one day on Yom Kippur when atonement was making for the sins of all of Israel. So they were like, well, if that's good, let's fast all the time. And there were many that made a weekly habit of fasting. They would fast, and they wanted you to know they were fasting because, hey, if I'm going to do something spiritual, I want you to know that I'm being spiritual, right? And so instead of cause bringing them to righteousness, all that it was achieving was self-righteousness. It was actually reinforcing the pride and the sin in their heart. Right? And so, and so they were, but they made this practice of fasting. And so John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came to him and he said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He's using a high holiday for the Jewish people. That the wedding feast, the festivities, the week-long festivities that surrounded a wedding was a big time for, in Jewish culture. Now, it was celebrated because it was the union of God with his people, right? And, and by the way, we take that same picture in our marriage, right, that we are connecting with Christ. You and your spouse and the connection you have together is bigger than just you are. We need to understand that or we're going to make really selfish decisions in that, in that relationship. It's bigger than we are. It's a picture of Christ in the church. And so they celebrated it as they should. And for a week, they would feast. For a week, they would have fun. They would hang out. It was a giant festival. And Jesus is saying, why would you fast during a festival? Why would anyone fast during Thanksgiving? Right? Are you kidding me? We'll fast next week. Next week is for creating the resolutions to lose weight, right? This is what Jesus is teaching. And then he uses another illustration. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. 
No one puts new wine in old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for the fresh wine skins. Between our first and our second house, my wife and I were building our second house, uh, and we got the glorious opportunity to live for two months with my parents and our child, all in the house together. And you know what? It's just not like old times. You know, like it's just not. Like, you know, you think like, hey, I'm coming home. I've lived in this house my whole life. Like, this, it's just different, right? Everybody understands that, recognizes that. They, they treated us very well. We've got a great relationship with my parents and her, her parents as well. But, man, it was just stressful. One of the things that stressed us out the most, and this seems trite until you've lived it, is uh, my dad has a very specific way of doing laundry. Uh, and if you live in his house, he will do your laundry. If he, he will look around. And some of y'all might do this, and this is ultra annoying to me. They will look around the house for clothing that matches that they can wash together. And so he would go scouring the house, finding the clothes. He'd throw it in. And my dad has one way to wash things. High heat, heavy, as high as it'll go. Right? We wash them. It's going to be quick. It's going to be fast. It's going to be hot. And you know what it does? <laughs> it shrinks close. I don't know why I still have this shirt. This is a shirt from that time uh, in, my, in my life. I think, it, I think it, actually it's because I can't ever tell it apart from the other shirt that I have that's very much like this until I put it on and then I can tell. Would y'all like to see it? Well, it's, it wouldn't be an object lesson if I didn't show you, right? So my dad, after a very, very short period of time, I started noticing that a lot of my clothes fit like that. Now, that might be acceptable if you're some pop star on some music video, but it's not for a pastor of a church, agreed? Nobody, ain't nobody want to see this. And so I began to get really annoyed when more and more of my shirts could no longer contain my big old body. It, it, it shrunk. This is the illustration that Jesus is using. He's saying, what I am doing, you can't fit into the garments of the way that you live your life today. What I am doing is new. And to incorporate Judaism into Christianity would only further tear your life apart. Right? Just like you would not patch a old garment with a new garment that was unshrunk because what would happen? The patch would shrink as Lon Ostrisky does your laundry. The patch would shrink tearing that shirt, right? In the same way, anybody would know you put old garments, shrunk cloth on shrunk clothing, right? And in the same way, Jesus is doing something new. And so you, this is not just a tag on to Judaism. He's not saying that all Judaism needs is a little spit shine. All the law needs is a little bit of work and a facelift. Jesus is using something as ordinary as clothing and drink to explain the disconnect between Christ and the law. He uses the idea of wineskins, which, by the way, is pretty definitive proof in my mind that not all the juice that they were drinking was grape juice. Why? Because fermentation is what causes the expansion. 
So you put new wine skins, animal skins, that you pour the wine in and as, pour the grape juice in. And as the Welch's sits in there, it ferments and it swells. And then you have something not Welch's, right? And he said, listen, if, if the skin's already expanded and you put grape juice in and it expands some more, you're going to burst the wine skins. Then what I am doing cannot be contained in what the everyday life that you live. What you are doing now is not going to bring you to obedience to Christ at some time in the future. It cannot happen. Christianity is not an extension of Judaism. Judaism can't contain it. Just as that trunk shirt cannot contain my body, Judaism cannot contain what Christ is doing. One is based on rules. The other is based on relationship. The law didn't need a spit shine. It needed a complete overhaul. In the same way that there isn't enough good you could do to improve yourself, you need to be made new. I would say... Just as Judaism could not contain the work of Christ and what Jesus was doing and the institution of the New Covenant Christian Church, I would say your good old boy theology can't contain it either. I would say you're trying to even up your good deeds and your bad deeds. It's probably not going to cut it as well. Your idea of just if I come to church, I'm right with the Lord is not going to contain it as well. You see, it's not going to fit any belief system because what Jesus was doing is he has power over those creeds. He has power over these ways of life. Your sinful lifestyle. Listen, you're reprobate and, and, and completely, um, completely unashamed disconnect with Jesus is not going to be contained in what Jesus is doing. Nothing fits except when it comes by faith through the grounds that Jesus provides. And so this is what, he, this is what he's teaching us. So he's not just over creation, right? But he is over creed. He's over any way that we could choose to live our life. And he addresses it in other places. He addresses the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2. He addresses hand washing in Mark chapter 7. All of these things are ways that he addresses those issues. But thirdly and finally, we don't just see power over creation and power over creed in our ways of lives, but we see power over the curse. The problem with the law, the problem with the way that you live your life is you can't, there is a spot you just can't clean. You just can't do it. There's nothing that you can do to do away with your iniquity. And so he's showing that we have power over the curse. Listen, that's shown in two ways in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. One is it's shown in power over hell. There is power that Jesus demonstrates over the kingdom of darkness. And while it is not primary, I believe, to the idea of the curse, I believe it is important because there is nothing, there is nothing that is greater and outside the purview of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that Jesus is not greater than. And so Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, we see his power over hell. By the way, we see it other places. We see it in Mark 1, 23 through 28, when he heals the demoniac in the, demoniac in the synagogue. We see it in chapter 7, 24 through 30. We talked about last week the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter. 
who had an unclean spirit. But listen to Mark 5. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he was, the demon was doing whatever it wanted to do, or these demons, as we'll find, wanted to do with this man. He was completely a puppet to what they desired, all until verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus was beginning to call this demon out of this man. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion. For we are many. This was not just one demon. This was many demons. A legion in Roman culture was 6,000 men. 6,000 men were what is what made up a legion of soldiers. So we don't know if it is a literal 6,000 demons that had possessed this man or if it was just symbolic of a lot of demons. But this man did not have just one demon. It was many demons that were under his control. So much so that at least 2,000 pigs died from it, right? Let's keep reading. And he begged him earnestly, do not send them out of the country Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the stink bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. It's safe to say we recognize that while the demons did not serve the purposes of Christ, they were of the kingdom of darkness. When Christ showed up, they were powerless to resist what Christ dictated. They were asking and requesting and begging. And then you have this weird aspect of the story of why the pigs? Why did he say, okay, then you can go into the pigs? We don't really know. There's a lot of theories. Maybe the pigs were already unclean ceremonially according to the Jewish law, but that kind of goes against what Jesus is teaching about the law and what he's doing being new. Uh, many, some, some have said it maybe to protect the life of the man because when the demon comes out, it hurts the person. I'm pretty sure Jesus could have watched over the person and, and exercised the demon, so I don't know where that holds water. Uh, many thought maybe to show the man and the residents that the demons were actually gone. They were dead. They were, they were cast into the sea. Um, and maybe it was an object lesson of the destruction that sin can cause. I, we don't know why they did it. Here's what I tend to believe, though. Jesus wasn't just preaching deliverance to the man. Now, only the man was delivered. Only the man was delivered. In fact, do you know how the people responded to what Jesus did? They asked him to leave. Get out of here. Why? Because they were more concerned with a revenue stream than they were the sanity of this man. They wanted to make money. 
And 2,000 pigs going in the water is bad for business. And so they were so concerned about their business endeavor, they missed the Messiah's endeavor to bring deliverance and hope. And so the man was clean. He had been washed. He was eating. He was of sound mind. And all they cared about was the money that had just run down the hill. I think this is further magnified by the fact that the man asked Jesus later in that chapter. He asked Jesus to come with him. You think, man, well, why wouldn't Jesus be like, well, sure, man, you're, you're probably going to be a committed follower. Why? So that every time that he showed his face in that community, the community would remember the power of Christ and they would remember their pride in their own heart. It very much fits the M.O. of what Jesus is doing in that day. Yes, what he was doing was a spectacle and it was drawing people, but it was calling out a few. But can I just tell you something? You don't need the devil to sin. The curse does not just rest on all the demonic forces that are at play in your heart and your life. You are not the victim to them. How you responded in yesterday's game, regardless of which side you fall on, the devil didn't make you do that. You know what James 1 says? You're drawn away and enticed by your own lust, by the own, your own affections of your heart. This idea of the devil made me do it, oh, there may be temptation there. The circumstances may be there, but only you sinned. You were drawn away and enticed by your own lust. We don't need the devil to sin. And so the curse of darkness is not, does not just rest in the heavenly realms amongst the Satan and his empire of demons. Where darkness resides is in our own heart. But Jesus proved power over the curse of sin as well. Yes, the power over hell, and that's important, right? We are serving the winning side. We win. That's good news. That is great news. But there's more to it than that. There's power over our sin. It is our sin that sends us to hell. It is not what the devil has done. Listen to this in Mark 2. Mark 2, flip over a few pages. Mark 2, 3 through 12. What is the heading of that passage of Scripture in your Bible? Jesus heals the paralyzed man or the paralytic. Let's begin reading. Again, we've read this a lot, y'all. This, this is one of them stories, right? You've probably done a craft as a kid of lowering some, some little gurney down, you know, through four friends lowering a gurney down. Listen to this. And they came bringing him in a paralyzed, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, we talked about that last week, he said to the paralytic, son, be healed of your paralysis, get up and walk. What does your translation say? And mine either. Son, your sins are forgiven. 
So where does the whole Jesus heals a paralyzed man come in? Now the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, get, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, not to make people walk, but has authority to forgive your stinking sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all so that they were, what, amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. According to this passage and how this passage reads, understand those little subheadings in your Bibles... They are not inspired. That is something man has created to help you read through your Bible. And that's fine. I have an issue with the title of this pericope, with this particular passage of Scripture. Because as I read the text, the most miraculous of miracles was not the man getting up. The title of the pericope of Scripture should not be the healing of the paralytic, but the forgiveness of of the paralytic. There was a greater miracle that happened in this passage of scripture than the man getting up and walking. And we don't know how the man responded to this. But you know what we don't have in scripture? The man tapping Jesus on the, on the shoulder, on the knee and saying, hey Jesus, I still can't walk. But he said, your sins are forgiven and then the next passage is all the people that had a problem with what he said. So what's going on here, what is the presenting problem for this man is not his true problem. Can, you just, can I just tell you what we are going through in our life? Many of the things that we pray for are not our biggest problem. It's not that we're going through difficult things. It's that we are separated from a God who has infinite love for us. Jesus showed not power to heal and do the miraculous. He saw there was power to forgive sins. And what did the people ask, right? In verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's a great question, Pharisees. Who in the world can forgive sin? Hey, I know what you're thinking, and so I'm just going to tell the man to get up and walk as proof to you that I have power to forgive sins. So what was the healing of the paralysis about? It was about those skeptics giving glory to God. The end result of that story is God getting the glory. About that, I had some thoughts, and I just I want to read them because I don't think I can do it any other way. Perhaps God is not is choosing not to bring the healing, the physical healing that we desire in our life, until we recognize the effect 
that what we are doing has on the glory of God instead of its effect that we have on our own glory, on our own lives. We care when we can't do things as effectively as we think we should. And so we begin to get the woe is me's and we begin to wonder why God would allow. How could God allow me to go through this? Maybe it's because if he didn't go through this, you'd be doing everything in your own glory. You'd be doing everything on your own power. You'd be giving the credit to you, yourself, and me, and I. Right? It's all about me. But maybe God is using those circumstances in our life to finally bring us to a place. Maybe he's wanting to address the real issues. Not the presenting issues that get all up in our way. But the true issue that God is looking to address so that when other needs may or may not be addressed, he's going to get the glory. Paralyzed man resulted in the glory given to God. Paul, who asked three times for God to remove something that was hindering him, this thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was. You know what the answer was? Nope. Three times. Do you know what he says? He says, I can't believe God would do this to me. No, that's a self-glorifying response. He says, well, I obviously need it in my life. So therefore, I will boast most gladly in my infirmity so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Even in his no that he received, God got the glory. Maybe if we cared a little less about how it affects our lives and more how it affects the glory of God, maybe we would begin to see some of the healing that we seek. But it begins by recognizing our true need. Our need is not to have relationships put back together. And some of you, and being around family this week, maybe that is put, that is a giant highlighter right now for you because it may have been a fiasco at your house amongst yours, your family your friends. And that may be the presenting need. The presenting need may, is not that you and your wife and your, or your husband can't get along. That's not, the, that's not the main need. That may be the presenting need, but that is not the need. The need is forgiveness. And when we see things the way God sees them, then whatever he does in our life, he gets the glory for. So what is it in your life, man, that is keeping you short of complete obedience? Jesus is greater than the curse. He is more powerful than the curse. He told the paralyzed man, as terrible of a circumstance as that was, it was not the paralysis that ultimately had the man crippled. It was his sin. The paralysis was the obvious presenting problem, but sin was what had truly crippled this man. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will not convince me that that paralyzed man was there for any other reason 
than to respond in faith that Jesus could forgive him of his sins. You can't convince me of that. I don't believe Jesus would have healed him if he just wanted the glory. He just wanted it to make his life better. But what did Jesus see? He saw faith. Do we have that same faith to respond in obedience to him? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I don't know what you're going through. Man, maybe your, your holidays have been great. <laughs> maybe they have been awesome. But we've all got a problem. And it may not be what is most obvious to us. But I promise you there's a spiritual solution to it. It may not mean that everything's resolved. In fact, in most cases, it probably means it won't be resolved. But now all of a sudden, you've got fresh perspective on it. Because God hasn't, doesn't desire to change our outsides. He desires to change our insides. And the insides affect the outside. Transforms it, even. So if you're here today, I want you to know that you've got a great need. You need forgiveness of sins. And listen, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, whatever lifestyle you're living doesn't fit in connection with Christ. You can't cram Jesus, cram church, cram home groups, cram ministry teams. You can't cram them in any lifestyle. Jesus won't fit in that. He wants to take over. He wants to transform you. So if you're here and you would respond in obedience to Christ, you can be saved today. You can understand what it means to be walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and that's the decision that you need to make, I'm here, would love to talk to you about that decision. We've got counselors that are here that are waiting that would love to talk to you about any decision you need to make for the Lord today. I pray that you would respond in obedience before it's everlasting too late. Father, have your will and way in this time of invitation. That as soon as we say amen to this prayer, that people would get up, they would respond. Pray for those that need to do business at the altar. They need to pray. They need to seek forgiveness for things in their life that are holding them, holding them back. May they give that over to you. We need forgiveness. We need faith. I pray that those would respond. I pray for one that needs to respond in a new relationship with you. I pray for one that may need to join arms with what we're doing here as a church and join Lindsay Lane North. Whatever the case may be, this is our time to respond to you and the pooling of your Holy Spirit. God, you love us and you desire us to be in relationship with you. May we respond to that today. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you do for us. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.